26, 2023 episode. Glad you could join us. Hey, there's a national championship game going on right now. Game three, if you've missed it since the last episode, LSU won an extra innings game one. Florida bounced back and crushed LSU last week or yesterday. Now game three, winner take all. I mean, right now we got a score update for you. 6-2 LSU in the bottom of the second. Maybe a high scoring affair. Florida is struggling a little bit. They went and got up 2-0. LSU matched it real quick. A six spot. The very next half inning, LSU just Florida just hanging around. They got it. They got to get. I think they'll get some runs there. They need to be tied or winning Florida in the seventh or eighth. I think there's still plenty of time for them to get some runs. They need to do it before they bring before LSU brings in Paul Skeens late. But again, I don't know if Florida can hold LSU. Uh, Jack Caglion, real hit, hit or miss. Everybody remembers knows him. The big two way player plays at first base, starts at first base for Florida. Also, is their Sunday number three pitcher. Struggled, didn't get out of the second, so now they're already in the bullpen. LSU has the advantage right now. Remember, winner take all SEC national championship game. I'll keep you updated as we continue to move on. Remember, 6 2 in the second right now, bottom of the second. Thatcher Heard going at it for the Tigers with a leadoff strikeout. Florida's got to get something going, but I'll keep you updated on that. We have a new segment. I'm, I'm fired up to bring it to you. The fan question segment. I will get to those questions. Uh, we'll be doing those for every episode from now on. So I'll be posting the day before. Post your questions on my Twitter. Underneath my Twitter, I will get to as many as possible. I think I got to all of them. But uh, I will say your Twitter hashtag, your Twitter name, and I will say the question. I'll answer it as well. We'll get to that here in a minute. Then we, we continue. We have the put up or shut up SEC East version. I did the West put up or shut up last Thursday's episode. Uh, remember, it's what position group needs to step up. Not necessarily the biggest weakness for each team. Not the biggest weakness. Really a position that's, hey, they've recruited well for two years, or it's been a position that's been holding them back a little bit. It's your time to step up. You may have to shoulder a little bit more of the weight to get the team to reach its ultimate goal this year. So not necessarily a weakness. Some of the positions would go hand in hand with that. Thinking a little bit outside the box, though, you'll be surprised maybe with my George one. But again, we'll get with that one in just a minute. Then we have a late, a late, a last minute guest. I added Jordan Harper, uh, head college basketball analyst for Rivals, writes for Tide Illustrated, covers Alabama basketball, but covers college basketball in general very well for Rivals. Uh, we're going to talk a little Alabama basketball. Javon Quinterly entering the transfer portal. I'll get to that in just a second. We'll talk about the landscape of the SEC as we sit five months out from the 23-24 season, where did the roster shake up? I mean, is it not crazy? We're talking about college basketball rosters at the end of June. The end of June, Javon Quinterly entered the portal. I'll talk about that in just a minute. Um, but as always, you know, we get started with the transfer portal, so let's get right into it. College basketball, the must-bus is officially full. There's no more tickets for the must-bus for the 23-24 season. Eric Musselman and the Razorbacks got a commitment from Memphis grad transfer Chandler Lawson. He'll fill that four spot, that power forward spot for the Hogs. Uh, averaged five points last year, four and a half rebounds. It's official. I mean, you kind of already thought Grant Nelson was going to be out for Arkansas, but again, they don't have any more roster. They don't have any more um, roster spots on that roster in favor right now. So the must bus is full. Um, I'm hearing a little bit from the Grant Nelson. Standpoint, they should have some news update on Thursday. Sounds like he's getting his classes in order. Uh, so that'll be it. But the must bus is full. They add Memphis grad transfer Chandler Lawson. Uh, Kentucky also got to commit. Another veteran guy that they needed. Remember, this is a young team. 
Cal signed the number one overall recruiting class. Antonio Reeves announced he was coming back next week. This is a good one-two punch from a veteran standpoint. Guys that have played a lot of college basketball here between Trey Mitchell, the West Virginia transfer, average 11.7 points per game, five and a half boards per game. This will be his fourth school. But again, another veteran presence. They need that. Big Antonio, been a good, good week. Good week for Cal and them after I think he fumbled. I'll be honest with you. If you want to go back and watch my last episode, I talk about I think uh, he should have addressed the roster with some transfer portal additions. Like they shouldn't be losing guys. I mean, you can lose Hunter Dickinson to Kansas, but you can't be losing Arthur Kaluma to Kansas State. I talked about that that last episode. But again, two big veteran additions, and I'm saying additions with Antonio Reeves because they needed that. They recruited him back. Antonio Reeves, Trey Mitchell from West Virginia, gives him some front court depth. Uh, that'll be big. Uh, and one of the bigger transfers of the offseason, though. Alabama Javon Quinterly, Marie came from Villanova to Alabama previously. Javon Quinterly enters the transfer portal. Names to be on the lookout. St. John's and Rick Patino, I've heard, in Memphis as well. Remember Rick Stansberry, who is the Western Kentucky head coach, is now an assistant with Penny Hardaway in Memphis to write up his alley. So those are the two teams I'm hearing right now for Javon Quinterly. St. John's would make sense. He's from New York, New Jersey. It would make sense for him to go back there. Memphis to play. Um Quinterly, in my opinion, maybe looking at another six-man role, hearing a lot of good things about Aaron Estrada. We'll uh, we'll talk here soon in our interview with Jordan Harper in a minute about how Aaron Estrada is looking for Alabama so far in these early practices. But I think it's going to be tough for him to get real. I thought I think it was going to be tough for JQ, Javon Quinterly, to get real minutes with Aaron Estrada and Mark Sears still being there. But, again, it's a loss. You can't, you can't sugarcoat it. It's a loss for Alabama. It's a veteran guard who's played a lot of basketball in that league. He's a 24-, 25-year-old a grad transfer that he's real experienced. He can put teams on his back sometimes, like he did against Auburn uh, in Tuscaloosa this year. I mean, this is a loss. This is a loss. There's no sugar. But, again, I really got a problem. Not really with Javon Quinterly transferring. Just when are we going to lock down these rosters? The end of May? I mean, I saw Jeff Goodman said it the other day. You know, a lot of these teams in the summer, they'll go do some summer series overseas. A lot of the SEC teams did it last year. Alabama went to Italy and Spain. Auburn went to Israel. I think Kentucky went to the Bahamas. Tennessee, I think, went to Spain, and so did Arkansas. Maybe Tennessee didn't go last year. Uh, Arkansas went to Spain. But anyways, there's going to be some kid on a team, not really in the SEC, but nationally, that goes and takes his trip, doesn't like the minutes he got in the three or four exhibition games he got or he played in, and he's going to come back and transfer. At some point, the NBA deadline and the transfer board deadline have to be married up. You're going to hear me say that word a lot, married up. When I'm getting into my uh, put-up or shut-up segments, I'm talking about that with positions. I don't know why. I'm just, that's the word I'm throwing around today. They have to be in unison. This doesn't make sense, guys losing guys on their roster at the beginning of July. I know it's June 26th, but I'm going to say it's the beginning of July, just for time's sake. It doesn't make sense. We have to fix that deadline. Not really mad at Javon Quinterly. He wants a more full-time role. I get it. A little interesting you're quitting on the team this late, but I get it. It's, it's the lay of the land. It's what we live in right now. It's the world we live in. But you got to put a deadline on college basketball. Come on, NCAA. We can't be having guys losing guys at the start of August, right after the July mini-mester, so they can graduate and then go move on somewhere else right for the fall semester. we got to change that. We have to change that. Uh, but just wanted to talk about that for a minute. Um, Alabama looks like they're going to go try to potentially um, replace Javon Quinterly with West Virginia guard transfer Joe Toussaint. And you may be asking why all these West Virginia guys, but Kentucky uh, getting Trey Mitchell and now Alabama with Joe Tassant or being on Joe Tassant. Um, Why? Well, I remember Bob Huggins got laid off. He got fired. Uh, the Hall of Famer got laid off. They just promoted their interim coach for the 23-24 season. So you're still going to have some of their top four, top four players potentially stay 
in the transfer portal. So that's the next guy Alabama is going after here. It looks to be Virginia grad transfer guard Joe Toussaint. Averaged 9.4 points per game last year, 2.6 assists. Um, he's not going to be JQ. He's not going to be, but he's played a lot of basketball. Another veteran guy. The Alabama roster this year is going to be very. It's going to be a veteran-led team. They're going to be starting three or four freshmen like they did last year at some points. So it's going to be a veteran team. It looks like. I don't know if they'll add Toussaint. Uh, it's a battle between. Right now, I would say K-State. I think he's OV into this week. So, again, it'll be interesting. I'll keep you updated on social media, on my Twitter, when I see that of him taking an official visit to Alabama. I would expect that at some point here um, down the line. Uh, his three-point shooting, Mark, looking at it right now. I went and watched some film on him. Uh, it improved drastically from the 21-22 season to this year, going from 25.7% to 32.7%. That, that's a big increase from three-point field goal percentage. That can get up to 35 36, maybe maybe I'm pushing a little bit. 38 would be a bad thing. Would not be a bad thing. So that'd be an interesting another veteran guard. I it wouldn't be upset again. Alabama has technically three roster spots available. If you're not counting Grant Nelson, you should know something by Thursday. I think good or bad. Um, just getting some grades in, in order. But if Grant Nelson goes, you'll have two spots left in that 13 man roster that the NCAA gives. I think he. I think Tucson would make a great third guard. Besides, like I said. Hearing good things about Aaron Estrada, the Hofstra guard, at 20 points, average 20 points a game at Hofstra last year. He's in Tuscaloosa. Mark Sears is going to take on a more offensive role next year and could even shoulder some of the true point guard responsibilities if Sears kind of wants to be – I'm sorry, Estrada could take on more of the full-time point guard responsibility if, if they want Sears to become that full-time, more offensive threat where he was more of a role guy last year, played backseat to Brandon Miller, which, I mean, that, that would make sense. But that's it from the basketball transfer portal. Kentucky looking good. Good week for the Wildcats. Alabama unexpected transfer. You'd heard about two months ago. I'd heard through some people. JQ was looking at it. But he announced he was coming back. He announced he was coming back. Fully expected him back. They have to change this deadline. Not going to go rehash on stuff that I'm talking about, but that stuff bothers me. At some point, we got to put a lock on these rosters in summertime so we can get some continuity and, be, and build teams on what they're built on. Some camaraderie, some togetherness. Like, let's be about the team, man. I, I get Javon Quinterly. It's, it's the way of the game right now. It's how – Everything is being portrayed out in all of college athletics, not just college basketball, but at some point, come on, two plus two equals four. Let's get the common sense committee out here. Let's put the same deadline, the NBA dead, uh, draft deadline, and the just overall lock on the rosters heading into next season by the start of the summer. Just one man's, just one man's opinion. College baseball, moving to that trench portal. I'm going to skim through this real quick. Um, I talked to you about – I'm not really going to get into this until we get – officially over with baseball season. But Alabama middle reliever Cade Woods transferred to LSU this past weekend. He is from Monroe, Louisiana. Big loss, in my opinion, for Alabama. Good young pitcher, redshirt freshman. Um, appeared in 17 games a season, one start. Finished with a 4-1 and one record and a 5.52 earned run average. Um, 38 strikeouts. He came out of the bullpen. Thought he did pretty good. Got roughed up against Wake Forest. But who hasn't? I think this would be a good pickup for Jay Johnson and LSU, especially from a Louisiana native. Alabama picked up a commitment from uh, Big Ten second team, all ten, all Big Ten second team Rutgers outfielder transfer, Eden Slight, batted 301 in the Big Ten, 24 home runs and 119 runs, batted in. Uh, be interesting to see how he adjusts. I think he batted about 300 in the Cape Cod last year when I was looking at it. So it shouldn't be too big of an adjustment, but it will be interesting nonetheless. Also, word on the street. Word on the street. Chase Burns, if you don't know who that is, that is Tennessee's big-time reliever. He was in the starting rotation at the beginning of the year. Chase Burns, uh, rumored to be in the transfer portal, and LSU's going to be the person, the team they're 
honestly looking at because he wants more of a full-time – he wants to be in the rotation in the Friday, Saturday, Sunday slot. I think the guy's dominant out of the pin. I think that's where his upside is. But, again, it's just the world we live in. He's on a really good baseball program right now. Tony Vitello is taking Tennessee to Omaha two in the last three years. I'm sure they can maybe work him into the rotation at some point. I'm sure it's something he's trying to talk Tennessee in. Here and it's kind of over, though. Here in LSU is kind of that team. So, God, what a big pickup week for them if LSU here in the near future were to get uh, Chase Burns and they picked up Cade Woods from the transfer portal from Alabama as well. So, just a little quick run through from a college baseball portal standpoint. Uh, check, giving you an updated score right now. We're in a commercial. I'll circle back to that one in just a minute. But moving on, put up or shut up position unit time, SEC East. If you remember the SEC Western, I had a blast with it. I hope you enjoyed that segment. I enjoyed putting this segment together. But, again, put up or shut up. It's the unit or group. I kind of pair up the secondary together, but I have some – contradict that a little bit in some of these. But – it's the unit that is not necessarily the weak spot. I'll explain it again. If you watch these episodes, you've heard me explain it a million times, but I just want if people are all gone late, I want them to understand what I'm talking about. It's not necessarily the biggest weakness, but it's a position group that's like, come on, guys, you have to be the bell cow. You have to be the bell cow. For example, I used Texas A&M's offensive line last week. If Bobby Petrino and the marriage of Jimbo Fisher is going to work, the offensive line has to establish the run. They got to run. They got to throw off the run. It's just what they're going to have to do. Like, it's a unit that has – some upside and ability, and it's kind of holding back. And that sounds like a weakness, but it could be a unit. It's like, hey, I don't really see a lot of hope in the wide receivers, just hypothetically. So the offensive line, you're going to have to take it up to the next level and take that next step. That's just the way it's going to have to be. So I just wanted to explain that. Leading off alphabetical order, alphabetical order, Florida, the put-up or shut-up position for base quarterback, Graham Mertz, Jack Miller, Graham Mertz transfer from Wisconsin, Jack Miller, Ohio State. Those are going to be the two fighting it out. Let's be honest. They both don't have the upside that Anthony Richardson had last year. But did we really see that upside from Anthony Richardson? I don't think we did. I don't even know how you could argue. Uh, can either one of these guys be a better fit for this specific offense for Billy Napier? I believe that could happen. I believe that could happen. Didn't look great in the spring game if you go back and watch. Um, and I'm asking, will that happen? It's going to have to happen if Florida's going to get to seven or eight wins. The schedule's too tough, man. At Utah, Tennessee at home, at LSU, Georgia and Jacksonville, at Kentucky. I'm going to add that in there. Florida State in the year. I don't think Arkansas at home is that bad of a West draw. It's just, man, it, it, it's bad. Florida's gotten to this point where we're hoping these quarterbacks can get to seven or eight wins. But remember, Vegas, Vegas, and they're pretty good at their job. They have the over-under Win total for Florida set at five and a half right now. And I'm not that far away from putting an under on that from the win total for Florida this year. But it's going to come down to this quarterback. Whoever wins that, Graham Mertz or Jack Miller, both transferring. The issue is the offensive line's going to step up too because both these guys are not very athletic. I mean, Graham Mertz isn't at all, and Jack Miller maybe be a, a little bit more. I mean, Mertz netted negative 21 yards rushing in his four years in Madison. In Wisconsin, it's time in Madison and Miller was not much better. Like I said, I, you heard me say the term Mary. This position is going to have to marry with the offensive line. They have a strength in the backfield. Montreal Johnson, Trevor Etienne, that's the strength of the team. So I was kind of back and forth on going with the quarterback and offensive line on who needed to step up more and who it's put up or shut up time. But the quarterback. 
Tech's the leader of the offense. So I'm going to give them, I'm going to give, I'm going to put the put up or shut up tag on the quarterback. Someone's going to have to step up in it, not be great, but be good within the system. And that goes back to Billy Napier setting themselves up for success. Because I think if they're able to run the football, throw off play action, you're going to give these guys, you're going to put these guys in their best situation to be successful. And I think that's what it's going to have to be, but then they're going to have to take advantage of that. Um, so I think this really comes down to Graham Mertz, Shaq Miller. I think Graham Mertz is going to win this job. But, man, man, it is time for this Gator quarterback room to put up or shut up. Georgia. Now you're wondering, Dave, I mean, what position group are you telling at the University of Georgia right now they need to put up or shut up? You'd be right. I mean, I, I was going into special teams a little bit. I was going into special teams a little bit. I was looking at – they lose Jack Pudlesny. He's gone after connecting on 26 of 31 field goal attempts I'm looking at right now for an 83% field goal percentage last year in 22. New kicker is going to be Jared Zirkel. Looks to be – looks to take over the place kicking duties. From Kerrville, Texas, Tivy High School, home of Johnny Manziel. Johnny Manziel, Kerrville, Texas, Tivy High School, home of Johnny Manziel, and also home to – Georgia's place kicker next year, Jared Zirkle. Uh, with that being said, though, but if I had to pick one group, not the special teams, shout out to Jared Zirkle. I hope he has a great year this year. But I have to one group, one group. And it's not a position group. It's, it's a unit. It's a group. It's not a position group, though. It's the senior leadership council. Let me explain this for what, what the senior leadership council is. If you don't know, most teams have this. I think every team has it. It's a group of Eight to 12 guys. I've been on different football staffs where there's been eight, there's been 10, there's been 12. Eight to 12 guys that, um, for Alabama's purposes, they determine the punishment for players that are that are on the three-strike rule. And after you first time, I think Deron Carter's who I remember being in the doghouse when I was in school at Alabama, and Barrett Jones had the famous quote he said to Nick Saban where, Coach, you always told us uh, we don't need the one blinking, the one light on the Christmas tree, it's not working. And that's what he was referring to was it was Deron Carter with that blinking light because he just kept getting in trouble, would do his punishments and then get in trouble again. That's one of the aspects the leadership does. But they also come up with their goals for each season. They're, they're, they meet with the head coach once a week, twice a week, just depending on how what time of year it is. But they're the ones that are supposed to hold the team together. As I've always said, what you hear in all the sports, the best teams are led by the best players. They are. Your best players are your best leaders. You're probably set up for success, but Georgia's got a real shot to do that. But they've won back-to-back -back titles now, and unless you've been living under a rock, you know that as well. So I'm not telling you anything you don't know. They're going for a three-peat this year. They will not have the external motivation they've had the last two years, and at some point, external motivation runs out anyways. It's, it's going to run out. At some point, you've got to have some of that internal motivation to get you going. And as Kirby Smart says, we eat floors around here. Georgia's got that some – Lack of a better term, some shit to them right now. They got the edge right now. What Alabama used to be. But that's got to be internal. Everybody's hyping up Georgia this year. Everybody thinks Georgia's going to be good. Their schedule's not very good. The senior leadership council is going to have to step up and make up some maybe internal propaganda if that works. Like how Michael Jordan used to make up stories to get him fired up. Being like, oh, that dude don't think I'm very good. That dude doesn't, that Clyde Drexler don't think I'm very good. People were saying he's better than me. So I'm going to go out and whip his butt. I mean, it's, it's what it is. That's what I mean. That's what it is. I mean, the standard has to be set. The standard had to be set before this conversation. I'm talking about it. It had to be set back in winter conditioning when they got back from LA after winning the national championship against TCU and they started winter conditioning programs. To now, they got another month of about another month left in their summer conditioning program with strength and conditioning coach Scott Sinclair. 
They need to finish strong. They can't be taken off. I mean, not saying they are, but it's just human. It's a human perspective. It's human mindset. Hey, I've won it back to back. I'm going to take some time off. I'm good right now. I'm reading the press clippings. Everybody's telling us we're freaking awesome, man. We're back to back. Georgia's never done that. There's only a matter of time before we win another one. Our schedule's easy. Everybody's telling us our schedule's easy. I mean, guys like Cedric Van Pran, Big Burger, Lad McConkey, Nazir Stackhouse, Jamon Demas Johnson, Small Munden, and Kamari Lasser. I don't know if those guys are on the senior leadership, but just going through the roster, those are guys that I think would be on their senior leadership council. Those guys are going to have to, and I'm sure they're doing it right now, and if they aren't, it's a problem. Georgia is the most talented team in the SEC, I think, right now, easily. Just call me crazy. Oh, really? More than Alabama or LSU, Dave, or Texas A&M? Yeah, yeah. Depth-wise, when you go through the top 40, yeah. Schedule's there for them to go undefeated. I personally think they're going to go 12-0. I think they're really their only chance to lose in the regular season is at Tennessee uh, and potentially in the SEC championship game as well against the West, the Western Division winner. But there's not a lot of hurdles in this upcoming offseason. And these players aren't dumb. There's so much out there. They see this stuff on social media being like, man, Georgia's got the – they're the first team in a long time that has a real shot to three-peat since probably Alabama in 2013, the kick six year where they finally lost. It's going to – this is going to have to be a internal leadership team. This national championship for Georgia, if they go back to back to back, if they three-peat, it started in January when they got back from winning the national championship against TCU. The leadership council stepped up, held people accountable. Because It's not about the X's and O's schemes. They got some of the best in the country. It's not about the talent. They got the top, best top 40 in the country. The schedule, I think I think it's a one-game schedule. I don't mean to say it like that. Kirby Smart would probably laugh at me and be like, this guy's was he talking about a one-game schedule? He doesn't want to hear that rap poison, but it's the truth. So there's got to be some internal motivation. There's got to be some internal motivation. So it's time to put up or shut up for Georgia's senior council. Senior Leadership Council. Moving on, the Kentucky Wildcats. Remember, we're doing the SEC East, put up or shut up. Kentucky Wildcats, it's offensive line. Just plain and simple, this unit was very underwhelming last year. They were horrific in pass protection and just above bad in regards to running the football. It was not good. Uh, big reason why I think Will Levis was banged up a lot last year and a big reason why I think a lot of people were not fans of him because he didn't get a lot of – he really did not get a lot of protection – clean pocket much of the time to deliver the ball down the field to a very talented wide receiver core. But the big blue walls, they called them until this past year, it used to be a staple of the Kentucky program. Mark Stoops and those boys used to hang their hat on being a very physical team because they had to be. They're not always, especially in a league like the SEC, going to be the most talented team from top to bottom. I mean, in the SEC, they could be more talented than Missouri and Vandy probably, and that's it. That's it. It's about development and being physical and having that edge. And Kentucky used to make their money on the offensive line, the big blue wall. Well, last year they were really bad. Last year they were really bad. Uh, but first-year offensive line coach Zach Yenser's unit has to take the flag and run with it for this offense. I think they got some weapons outside of this. It just depends what this offensive line does. But it doesn't matter about Devin Leary, the NC State transfer quarterback that I think is going to have a good season for him if they can give him some protection. If they can't protect him, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Chris Rodriguez is gone, the all-SEC running back. But I like this Vanderbilt transfer, Ray Davis. Good running back will need a line to give him a chance, but it doesn't matter about Ray Davis if the offensive line can't run block. It, it doesn't matter. So it's going to come down to guys. They brought in some transfers to plug some holes, guys like Cortland Ford coming in at the tackle spot from USC, and Marquise Cox, another tackle transfer from Northern Illinois. They brought in for the portal to fix the issues at tackle. Feel a little bit better about their interior, but Zach Yenser, first-year offensive line coach coming from the San Francisco 49ers, 
I, this position unit, probably them in South Carolina, are probably one of the more interesting ones, I think, to determine how good of a season each team has, and specifically here at Kentucky. But you got to think, I like what Devin Leary does at South Carolina. I like what he brings to the table. I think Kentucky has a really good wide receiver room, not only for them, but for really for a lot of teams. I mean, guys like Barry and Brown, Tavion Robinson, and Dane Key, those are good outside weapons. You got to protect the quarterback so he can distribute the football to the playmakers. All starts up front. We know this. If you pay attention to football at all, I'm not telling you something you don't know. Football is one on both lines of scrimmage, the offensive line and defensive line. Till this day, we're putting up a lot of points. It's about limiting explosive plays, but it still starts on both sides of the line of scrimmage. Kentucky needs to get their edge back. That big blue wall needs to step up. Zach Yenser and the boys have a big task, and I think it's really going to determine how good this Wildcat team is next year. Remember, they get O.C. Liam Cohen back from the Los Angeles Rams. They got a lot of stuff working for them on offense. It's going to come down to this offensive line and how good this season is. Kentucky's offensive line, it's time to put up or shut up. Moving on, moving on. Put up, shut up, SEC East version for you people just tuning in for us. Missouri, you head to Como. Heading into Eli Drinkwitz's third season. It's put up or shut up time for the quarterback position, in my opinion. And Missouri has weapons on the outside. I mean, guys like Dominic – I mean, I know they lost Dominic Lovett to Georgia. But guys like Luther Burton, Mookie Cooper, and Theo Weiss, all, Theo Weiss, the Oklahoma transfer, all on the roster, and they're looking to take the top off defenses in Como. They have ability. You have to have somebody to give them the football. The quarterback position has been the big issue since Eli Drinkwitz has been in Columbia, Missouri. It's held him back. His, I mean, his overall record as a head coach of Missouri is 17-19, and 19, and it's reflected because they haven't been able to find a quarterback. Um, last year, Missouri only threw 14 touchdown passes, and six of them came last year against New Mexico State and Abilene Christian. 14 touchdown passes thrown last year, and six of them came against Abilene Christian and New Mexico State. Got to start producing more in-conference play. There have been opportunities during the Drinkowitz time, in my opinion. They could have beat Georgia last year. They are up 10, about eight, nine minutes left in the fourth quarter. And they've stacked recruiting classes back to back to back. They – they're starting to acquire talent in all the positions. But, again, it's the most important position in all of sports, and I'm talking about the quarterback position, the most important position in all of sports, so they call me crazy. I don't even think it's that close. They still haven't answered that question. Eli Drinkwitz, an offensive guy, has not quite answered that question. So if they can't get it worked out this year, people are going to start looking at Eli Drinkwitz. They brought the new OC in from Fresno State. That should help. They're really just missing quarterbacks. I don't really mind their offensive line. They got some good running backs, and I just named you the receivers. Uh, but guys who are going to battle this out, returning starter Brady Cook, I think he's just a guy. Uh, Miami transfer, Jake Garcia. You probably remember him from the quarterback show a couple years ago. He transferred down to Colquitt County, um, played there a little bit. Jake Garcia, you remember him. Uh, and then they're probably going to get a chance as well as redshirt freshman Sam Horn as well. I'm not overly jacked about any of these three guys, but someone's got to take that next step and. If these guys can't stretch the ball down, but we got to get the ball in playmakers' hands. I mean, you got a lot of them. Luther Burden, I named them Mookie Cooper and Theo Weeks. You got some weapons. Someone has to step up between Brady Cook and most likely Jake Garcia. Someone has to step up. So, Missouri's quarterbacks, it's time to put up or shut up. Moving along, SEC's put up or shut up. South Carolina, you heard me mention them a little bit with Kentucky, one of the more intriguing positions units that I think is going to have a major impact on how successful the Gamecock season is, just like I mentioned with Kentucky. South Carolina offensive line, I got this one from internally, and I thought this was the same here. 
either the offensive line or running backs. The running game just got to get going. But touch someone on the inside at South Carolina Day, and he agreed with this as well. Echoed the same sentiment. The pass protection was poor last year, let's be honest. The tackles for loss were even worse, and there was zero run game. And you add in your best running back, Marshawn Lloyd, transferred to USC in the offseason. That tells you what you need to know about the confidence right now in the run game up front for South Carolina on offense. Not a lot of depth at running back. And the offensive line, I think we've been saying it for years, even going back to when Will Muschamp was there, the offensive line just never really took that next step to go win those nine, ten games. It just never did. When you got a quarterback like Spencer Rattler back there who has major upside and could be a top two or three quarterback if he can get a little bit more consistency out of his play. But that starts with protection. He's got to feel comfortable in the pocket to be consistent. If he can, South Carolina go win nine games this year. But Lonnie Teasley, the new offensive line coach, will have some guys to work with. Jalen Nichols, Ja'Kai Moore, Vershawn Lee, they're back. But this is his first time working with this unit full-time. The offensive line coach last year, I think Coach um, Adkins was in and out because he was sick. Lonnie Teasley was an analyst last year, but he got promoted to the full-time offensive line job. So this will be his first full-time year working with this unit. Did a solid job with him last year. But it's time to take that next step. South Carolina finished the season strong, whipping Tennessee and Clemson. And then having a good competitive bowl game in the Gator Bowl against Notre Dame last year. I think they finished strong. If you're a South Carolina fan, if you support the Scarlet or the Garnet, no, uh, the Garnet, what did I tell you? The Garnet and Black this year are your Gamecock fan. You, get, you had to feel good about how the season ended last year. You, you did well in recruiting. I think Beamer's got it rolling there. And you got two big wins, two of the biggest South Carolina wins in the last five, six years easily. You ended the streak against Clemson in Clemson and Death Valley, and you ended Tennessee's playoff hopes. So, obviously, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Massive finish for South Carolina last year. I don't care what happened in the Gator Bowl. But, again, this unit has to improve. If they can prove, if they can prove, nine games is in the grasp of South Carolina. Easily, in my opinion. Easily. Uh, But, again, South Carolina's offensive line, it's time to put up or shut up. Moving on, the Tennessee Volunteers. Tennessee Volunteers. Got two schools left, Tennessee and Missouri. Tennessee Volunteers, it goes to the corners. Goes to the cornerbacks room right here, specific position here. The defense overall last year was not as porous as people thought last year. I mean, to be fair to them, this is an over an overall defensive unit that only gave up more than 27 points just three times last year. Just, just three times they gave up more than 27 points. You think, no way. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was against South Carolina, Alabama, and I think Florida were the three teams they gave it up to last year. No, or gave up more than 27 points to. But the place of improvement on that defense for Tim Banks has to be at the cornerback position. The offense is not going to be as good as it was last year. I don't care what Tennessee people tell me. Uh, doesn't mean it's going to be bad, the Tennessee offense. I want to I want to correct my statement. But to expect the same level of play after the year Hendon Hooker had is a little bit too much last year. I mean, I think people forget the guy was a 70% passer and only turned it over two times last year. Joe Milton's not going to do that. He's not. I'm sorry. I think he could be solid, had a good game against Clemson, but you're just not going to be as good on offense as you were last year. You're just not. You're just not. It's, and it's not a bad thing. You're going to be good, but not as good. I don't think at times people realize how good Tennessee was last year. I don't think their fans realize it sometimes. That's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. But it means the defense is going to have to be a little better, specifically in the secondary. Uh, but this is a secondary unit last year. It finished 127th at 131 in passing yards allowed last year. That needs to be improved. 
And honestly, I think the passing yards in today's game is a little bit overrated. You need to be really good in the red zone. If you give yards up between the 20s, does it really freaking matter if they're not getting it? If your own team's to fill goals, stopping them on third down, limiting explosive plays, and you're forcing turnovers. And that leads me to my next point. Forcing turnovers. Tennessee went bad in it last year. Their average is just below. They only had 11 interceptions in total last year. That needs to improve, I think. They're going to steal some more possession because, again, it's not real to expect this offense to go put up what they did last year. So, therefore, it's a lot of things in life for a sliding scale, right? Like, Tennessee's offense, I think, is going to go a little down this year. So, for them to go match what they had to do last year, the defense is going to have to go match that. You could pick up a little bit of that slack. It doesn't mean the offense isn't going to go score 30-plus points a game, but also means the defense can't go give up 30, over 30, 35 points a game. They're going to lose. It's going to, it's not going to get – the defense has to improve. And I hear Josh Heupel say he wants to go play elite defense. I personally don't know if you can go play elite defense with how fast they play. But, again, it doesn't matter if you can stop them between the 20s, hold them to field goals, and create some turnovers. I mean, Tennessee was really good in tackles for a loss last year. The interior of the defensive line stopped the run, really, for the most part. They were pretty, Tennessee's better on defense last year than people gave them credit for. Remember, only three times did they give up more than 27 points as a total unit. They really weren't that bad. They just gave up a ton of passing yards. They need to get the turnovers up. They need more than 11 interceptions. Not a bad number. Not a bad number. They need to get it up. I think Illinois had something like 25 last year, which, again, it's very high. They took, they got a lot of turnovers, took away. They got interceptions. But Tennessee needs to raise that up because it's going to have to equal out. If Tennessee wants to go win a 10 or 11 games this year, the defense got to step it up. The defense. The defense got to step it up because I think the offense is going to go down a little bit. So you got to you got to raise that bar there, defense. you got to help them out. But, again, I mean, you got a senior unit. you got some guys in the back. you got veteran guys like Danico Slaughter, Kamal Hayden, and Tamarian McDonald. Then you add in another veteran in BYU and Bandy transfer, Gabe Judy Lally. Tennessee's going to have some experience back there. They just got to stay injury free, and I know sometimes it's not your it's not your own fault. But at the end of the day, you got to have some guys out there just not going to get beat over the top and give up explosive plays. That's what Tennessee's got to do. They got to be a little bit more aggressive and force some more turnovers. Um, I expect an improved unit overall from Tim Banks and the Volunteer defense. But for the cornerback position, it's time to put up or shut up. And then heading to the final position group of the night, the cornerbacks for the Vanderbilt Commodores. It's put up or shut up time in Nashville. Uh, if Vanderbilt can improve on giving up the explosive plays, I think they have a real shot of getting to six this year. I do. And then, and then got, I like what uh, A.J. Swan's doing. I like what Will Shepard's doing on the outside. I think they have some weapons. I mean, they lost their running back. We talked about him just a minute ago, transferring to Kentucky. But I think there's some weapons. Defense has got to be improved, and that's a Clark Lee specialty. So I expect it to get improved. I like what Clark Lee's done. I'm on this show all the time telling you I like what Clark Lee's done so far. I think they had a really good season getting the five wins last year. But they have a real shot if they can get the if they can limit some of the explosive plays. They're just not very athletic on the back end, Vanderbilt. It's you're pretty limited to your ceiling on how much. I mean, you're gonna get the big tall guys that can run. Well, everybody's looking for that. So I mean, Vanderbilt. I mean, at Vanderbilt or Scott Vanderbilt, you're gonna have to be a little niche uh, niche on the uh, your position unit. They're going to give up some size for speed, or you're just going to give up some speed for size. I, a lot of schools are like that. Vanderbilt's going to have to be one. But the underclassmen have to step up here. I mean, you got some redshirt freshmen like Tradell Berry who have to take on a bigger role. Uh, this unit, unfortunately, I, I could see this being a worse unit next year. I could see this being a worse unit. Something similar if you want me to – remember the Ole Miss game in Nashville last year when Ole Miss went and torched. Jackson Dart and Jonathan Mingo towards the Vanderbilt defense. You got guys in. The, I'm talking about their corners, but guys like the Ricky Wright's a safety, a very limited athlete, should probably be playing at the second level at linebacker. 
Vanderbilt's just not an athletic group on the back end. I really don't see it getting better. That's why I'm just telling you right now, we're not doing season previews right now. I just don't see them getting a six until they get better back there. And I don't think that could happen here. I think it's too late from a standpoint. This isn't a scheme thing. This is just they're not very talented back there. And it's hard enough to get talented players like that at Vanderbilt and get them to stay. I just think they're so limited back there. But if they want to have any shot of getting to six wins, and if this unit can improve, I think they can. I think they can get to six wins. I just – this is the position group of the SECs I feel the least confident about actually putting up. But Vanderbilt's cornerbacks, it's time to put up or shut up. So reviewing the SECs, put up or shut up. Kind of the units I feel the most confident in, I would say, live up to that. Let's look at them right now. We're looking back at our notes. Florida, I don't feel overly confident about putting up, put up or shut up. I don't, I don't think they put up for us. Uh, let's go Georgia. I think that's a unit. I think, I mean, I said it's their senior leadership council. I, I could I think it's going to step up for them. I think it's going to step up for them. Kentucky, I'm on the fence. Would not shock me either way. I'm real interested in that unit. Uh, Missouri, I don't expect that to get, I don't expect them to put up. I don't expect a Brady Cook or Jake Garcia to step up for them like they need to. South Carolina, in the same box, same bucket as Kentucky for me. Could see it either way. I bet one of them ends up doing it. I, I lean a little bit more. I trust Kentucky a little bit more, but it'll be interesting. South Carolina, same bucket bucket as Kentucky. Tennessee, I think the corners are going to be better. Too many veteran guys like the Nico Slaughter, Tamario McDonald, and the BYU transfer is going to step up for them as well. And then I just mentioned Vanderbilt. Not really see them stepping up and making the plays necessary. Just be, it's not going to be a Clark Lee thing. They're just limited athletically. And again, like if you want to see what they're probably going to look like this year, go put on the Ole Miss game from last week last year with. Jonathan Mingo just made his money off that unit. But I got transitioning over. Uh, we got Jordan Harper hoping to top on here in the next seven, 10 minutes. Uh, got some fan questions, though. So I'll probably get into some of these fan questions and then we'll have to cut, get, get Jordan on, and then I'll finish the show with the fan questions. Let's get you an updated College World Series championship score right now. Get a sip of water in here. Looks like LSU just hit a double, Joe Bear. Six-two, top of the fourth right now. Game chugging along a little bit. Six-two uh, right now. LSU in the top of the fourth. LSU's got two outs and a guy on second. Like I said, Joe Braden Joe Barry just hit a double off the wall. Jordan Thompson's up for LSU right now. So let's get into the fan questions here. I'll keep you updated on this score again. Six-two, top of the fourth. The Fighting Bayou Bengals leading it. Remember, winner wins the two thousand three. College World Series with this. SEC, SEC matchups. College World Series has been a blast. We haven't been able to watch it this year. Every game has been close. I mean, the well, obviously yesterday, the blowout with Florida in game two of the College World Series Championship Series was a blowout. But yeah, every other game has been really fun. It's been really fun. So, fans question. I'm going to start every episode. Every I'm going to do this segment every episode now. 24 hours out, I'm going to post fan questions. I'm going to go through them answer them for you as best as I can. Uh, I just want to get the fans involved. I only have a show because of you guys. I want to see y'all's real questions, and I'm here to answer those questions for you because I've sat in a lot of these chairs before that we need to talk about, so I feel like I have pretty good information that I can share with you, but I want to hear it from you. I want, I want direct questions, and I feel like we have some pretty good questions uh, rolling through here. So let's get started. Leading off first. Leading off first here from at Josh Gray. Here it is right here. At Josh Gray 11 ask, 
Saban is the go to this era. Bryant is the go to the previous era. He's talking about Paul Bryant, Paul Bear Bryant. But in your opinion, who is the best college coach of all time, excluding those two? Josh Gray, appreciate the answer. So he's asking who besides Nick Saban and Bear Bryant. Now, and I appreciate Josh uh, putting them in different categories because they're different eras. So it's tough to just say one overall. But who is the best coach after Nick Saban and Bear Bryant? Probably to go Tom Osborne, right, from his Nebraska days. I mean, I feel like Nebraska fans are still hungry for that success they had. I mean, he's the reason Nebraska fans thirst for success. Like I said, the dominance in the Big 8, Big 12 he had in the 80s and 90s were second to none. Three national championships in a decade span. And you're in the same conversation as Alabama and Nick Saban. They, they had five. They had five from 2009 to 2017. So that eight-year period, uh, you're in that mold. So, I mean, I think it's a solid question by Josh Gray there. I'd have to say Tom Osborne there. But, I mean, other guys in that conversation, no one had the overall long-term success like Tom Osborne. I mean, guys that come to mind there, I mean, who are you talking about? Uh, Bo Schimbeckler. Um, from an SEC standpoint, Steve Spurrier, he did it both Florida and won 11, uh, 11 games three years in a row at South Carolina. I mean, Steve Spurrier's in that. Bobby Bowden, Bobby Bowden would be right after Tom Osborne, in my opinion. Uh, Spurrier struggled against Bowden, but both, I think both those guys come to mind. Um, uh, maybe not a good name to throw right now, but I mean, he's won everywhere he's been from Utah, Florida, Ohio State, Urban Meyer. People may not agree with that. Um, but I'm going to stick with Tom Osborne. Stick with Tom Osborne on that one. Um, trying to think of anybody else. I, I, I really think that's it. I'm gonna stick with Tom Osborne again. What they did in the '80s and the Big Eight back there, then before the Big Twelve, and you know, what they did in the Big Twelve, winning three national championships in a ten-year span. Great question though, Josh Gray at Josh Gray Eleven. I appreciate you. Thank you for listening to the show. Um, and I'm gonna pause here for just a minute. I'm gonna try to get Jordan Harper in here in just a minute. Talk some SEC basketball. Uh, Javon Quinterly transfer portal. I know we're five months out from the college basketball season, but it's never too early to talk about. We're talking about college basketball rosters, June 26. Just wanted to get one of these fan questions in before Jordan got on because we had some extra time, but I want to send him the email to the invite. Uh, check back in on the LSU Florida baseball game, but I didn't want to get into the meat and potatoes of the fan questions and then come back. So I answered one of them and we'll come back and finish the rest of them. I got about four or five more after Jordan Harper joins us. But let me get the link. Let me add him. All right, let her know we just sent it to him. Perfect. All right, so right now, speaking of the LSU Florida baseball game, what do we got right here? Whoo! Opened it. Oh, I just went to commercial nine to two LSU still the top of the fourth. Uh, could just went to commercial. Couldn't tell if they were going to the bottom, of it, but LSU just taking control, not looking good for Florida right now. Not looking good for Florida right now. They are hanging on by a thread, hanging on by a thread. You got to think too. Paul Skeens is probably taking the tennis shoes off and he's about to start putting the cleats on. You never, they may even not have to bring him in. 
They maybe not. We may even get to that point where you do not even have to bring him in. And I was talking about how great the College World Series was. Think about this. Every one of those games from starting from that first Friday a week and a half ago, a week and a half ago, a lot of 1-1 games coming down late. How about the last two games? Yesterday and today could just be utter blowouts. That's just kind of where we're at right now. Going in a Gordon, what's going on, man? What's going on, dude? Doing all right? I appreciate, I appreciate you hopping on the show right now. Yeah, man. Anytime. So we're, anytime. So we're live right now. So just wanted to bring Jordan in, talk a little basketball. Uh, we, As we know right now, I, I talked about Jordan a little bit. Head college basketball analyst for Rivals and Rights for Tide Illustrated. I give him a follow right now. He does a great job keeping up really in the southeast, man. I think you do a great job keeping up. And This is an SEC podcast. So I think you do a really good job, obviously, covering Alabama, covering the SEC. And with last night's news, with last night's news, Javon Quinterly entering the transfer portal last night, uh, randomly surprised to some, maybe some not, but just uh, just a little bit of thought. What's some thoughts on that initially before we get in? You talking about yourself a little bit. Uh, initial thoughts on Javon Quinterly entering the transfer portal on June 25th. Yeah, timing's tough. Uh, that last part says it all. It's you're getting into the dog days of summer and typically you mean, you know, baseball in the dog days of summer, but in basketball, this is when practices are starting. That's when the teams are starting to jail. Um, freshmen are coming on campus. Transfers are just getting there and to lose a leader like Javon Quinterly, um, the best player off the bench for Alabama, and arguably the best player they've had in March, the past few seasons. I'm um, just losing him this late in the process when, if he would have done this in late May, even early June, it would people wouldn't have really been as upset. Alabama fans wouldn't have been upset because that would have given Nate Oates and staff time to find people that are actually still in the portal. But there's nobody now. Um, you know, Joe Toussaint or however you pronounce his name. Yeah. I apologize to him if I said it wrong. But no, you know, with, with situations like West Virginia's had, which are random. It's not going to happen hardly ever where a coaching change happens in June and some talented players enter the portal. Um, they could luck out and get him. I know he's going on a visit to Kansas State and Texas Tech this week, but um, there's really nobody out there, man, um, especially not to the level of Javon Clearly, which Tassan isn't either. But for it to happen this late, it, it, it makes it very fishy. Um, I'm sure what, people know what I mean by that. Um, Coaches are always lurking, and, you know, he, I, I believe that's what happened. Like, I, I feel like he got lured away. He, there's no reason that he should have been upset about playing time or role. He knows what his role is. He knows what his playing time is. Um, and I'm sure Nate Oates had told him that straight up. And if he told him that in May or April – Nothing's really changed since then. They added Aaron Estrada, who's a two-guard. They added Latrell Reitzel, which is a two-guard. It's really him and Mark Sears as point guards. And Mark Sears really isn't a true point, in my opinion. He's more suited as off-ball. So he knew his role the whole time. Nothing's changed. But something obviously changed in other areas that caused him to leave. And People, you know, that had their ear to the ground knew that there's been rumblings most of the offseason, even when he came back from the process, that there was a possibility of, of it happening. But, you know, it being this late in the process is what I think rubs people the wrong way. 
Yeah, and I saw Jeff Goodman tweeting about it last night. I felt the same way. It's like at some point we have to have some deadline, almost like with the NBA draft deadline where it's, hey, these rosters are locked. We're going to the summer. Because I think he even called it. I think at some point here when these teams – I really don't feel like a lot of SEC teams are doing this this year because they did it last year. You know, the four-year rule going overseas for the exhibition. It wouldn't shock me if some kid goes over there, not like the minutes he's getting with a team somewhere else in another league, and he goes and graduates after the July semester and enters the portal. That's where you see a lot of teams going into the season. Alabama did it last year, leaving a spot open. You never know what's going to happen. You never know who's going to be upset, uh, which they ended up using that spot for Davin Cosby, who ended up reclassifying, which is always a possibility, um, doing something what Jaron Stevenson just did, but do it midseason. Um, so, yeah, college coaches are in such a precarious predicament um, in terms of roster um, control. So, I feel like coaching games is the very top of their worry. And then roster control has become a close number two of knowing how your players feel. You got to control the NIL. Who's getting the most money? Is so-and-so unhappy? It's just they're worrying, having to worry about so many other things that they shouldn't have to worry about. But that's that's today's college athletics, man. And I don't Yeah, think, I mean, you're, I wor- you're worried about time. No, go ahead. If you finish, I'm sorry. No, I, I don't see it getting better anytime soon was all I was, all was going to no, add. You, you see it in every sport now. These coaches, like, everyone's entering the transfer portal in these postseason tournaments, whether it be bowl games for football, the NCAA tournament for basketball, and the NCAA baseball tournament. It's like, man, I'm trying to keep my roster together in the middle of trying to win a championship. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, it's it's frustrating. I mean, do you think from an optimistic view here, an Alabama fan, optimistic view here, do you see this as like a good thing? Maybe Aaron Estrada is a lot better than people are thinking. I mean, you hear some stuff on social media and you see it like, hey, this guy's going to practice. It's kind of the real deal. Is that kind of a, a realistic point of view, you think, or a little too optimistic? People are trying to twist it. and There can be sour Alabama fans about it. I get it. Um, but most people I've seen have been very neutral about it. It's like, you know, Best of luck to JQ. You know, what he did for Alabama was incredible, which he, he's a legend in my books uh, for what he did in March, um, both of the SEC tournament runs. Um, you know, it it's always going to be a down, you know, a negative when you lose a player as talented as he is. Um, but, you know, I, I really am high on Aaron Estrada. I think he's an all-SEC player his first year. Uh, Latrell uh, Ratzel is going to be somebody that's going to come off the bench as a – a secondary scorer, um, but just losing him, he's he's the primary ball handler in this offense on this team. Um, he's the only true point guard. Like he could, I, he could play the two guard, I guess. He's really small, which so is Sears, but Quinterly has a lot better handles and playmaking ability with the ball in his hands than Sears does. Um, yeah. it's just Quinterly thrives coming off the bench. I mean, some guys just do, um, but. Losing him as a secondary ball handler off the bench really opens up a hole now. And everybody was flourishing about their backcourt, rightfully so. It's deep, it's talented, but it takes a hit now. And now you got two spots open. You need one for the front court if you can to either get a you know a starter at the center position over Pringle or somebody to back them up because you don't have much depth there either. Um, so it's I'm glad I'm glad you brought that. I'm glad you brought that up because according to myself right now, I'm looking at. It. Formerly, Alabama's filled, what, 10 of the 13 spots now. Should be hearing something about Grant Nelson soon. So that would – if you're not counting him, Bama's got three spots. If you're counting him, they got two. It's like you said, you go add uh, Tucson, which it looks like they're going to go after. But the fight probably can't stay that, it seems like. 
Uh, like where, where else do you think they go from there? Who's kind of a front court guy they could kind of go get from, uh, in your opinion? Man, I was looking at the transfer portal guys, and it's slim pickings, man, especially at the front court at the position they need, which is the five position. Um, you could play Nelson at the five and kind of just go go smaller. I mean, I'm not saying Nelson's small or anything, but he's he's small in size. He's not going to be a guy that's going to bang down low um, and defend down there against bigger guys. But having him and Stevenson at the five and the four at times, you're going to be exposed against bigger teams, especially down yeah. low. Um, Mississippi State. Yeah, you're, you're really going to need those bangers down low. And I, I don't even yeah. see Pringle as that. Um, he's more of an athletic freak that'll jump out of the gym. Yeah. But you know he struggles with fouls. His footwork's not the best. And he just does he doesn't move well enough. He can't he can't bang with him down low um, enough to stay out of foul trouble and you know be a rim protector. That's what they lack the most is a rim protector. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, you're losing Charles Bediaco. That's the big one. That's the big that one. Would, like, not even off it's like from a defensive standpoint, that changes the way you play defense. Like Yeah. Unfortunately, it kind of is what it is. He's a top ten defender, post defender in the in the nation, in my opinion. Um, last year coming if he would have came back, he would have been uh, just just the shots he alters on a game by game basis is incredible. Um, just leaving that thread out there and it makes everybody's jobs easier. So, Jordan, a couple more questions, man, before we get you out of here. Appreciate you joining us. Everybody just joining now is Jordan Harper, college basketball analyst from Rivals, right from Tide Illustrated, joining us right now talking Alabama basketball. Not to talk about SEC in general. But if you had your guess right now, we're five months out. Games will start again in November. What's the starting lineup right now, in your opinion? One through five, your opinion. Again, I think the positive about you losing these guys is it's not like you lost Chuck in the middle of the year for an injury and you're changing. You're in the middle of the year, you're changing your defense in the middle of the year. You do have months to get this right. And I'm intrigued by these potential lineups that Oaks and the new coaching staff put together. Yeah. Mark Sears is going to start at point guard. I think that's a given. And Aaron Estrada at the two. Rylan Griffin at the three is pretty much solidified. Um, the four and the five is going to be where I'm going to see an intrigue. Like, I'm going to be the most intrigued about. Because either A, you're going to go with um, – you know, Jaron Stevenson and Grant Nelson at the four and the five and just have an athletic outside-in or um, inside-out type offense, just five out, um, spread the ball around, have shooters everywhere. And I think that's the Nate Oates' offense. Um, but he likes playing a guy that's, at, you know, Vidiaka wasn't athletic, but he could grab a lot of boards down low. He can affect shots. Pringle can do that. Um, foul trouble concerns me. Um, but if I had to guess right now, considering Stevenson 17 going into the SEC, I think it's going to be Sears, Estrada, Griffin, Grant Nelson, Nick Pringle. That's probably going to be the opening day starting lineup, I think. Um, just to kind of get Stevenson, he might come out of nowhere like Noah Clowney did last year and surprise and start at the four and let, allow them to start Nelson at the five. But I think they'll start Nelson at the four and Pringle at the five starting out. Pringle at the five, it makes that up. Yeah. All right, one, one more Alabama direct question for you, and we'll move to the rest of the league. Outside of Brandon Miller, you were asking Nato what one player he would bring back from last year's roster to this year's roster. Who is it? Noah Clowney, 100%. Um, he's just that guy that you can play at the four and just be a stretch stretch forward, um, mismatch. I mean, you saw him mismatch. Like, guys didn't feel comfortable guarding 
outside. There's just not many defenders that size that are. Um, he's a guy that you can put down low, and he can still score over you. And you can put him at the five, and he can defend you know, three through five. He's that athletic, um, that long, and he has great shot-making ability. And, you know, one thing that was underrated about him was his passing. He knew when to pass it out. He, he made great passes, great reads on cuts. Um, he's just a do-it-all, man. And he, get, he deserves and earned everything he got being picked 21st in the draft, coming from, you know, borderline top 100 recruit everywhere. Yeah, I was interested in your response to that because I, I think it was either going to have to be Noah Clowney or it's going to be Charles Bediaco if you're going more towards the defensive alignment step up now. We're probably to give a little more space. Yeah. Give up a little more space now. Yeah, Clowney offers defense. Uh, he, he's a very solid on-ball def- defender. He's not yeah. a rim protector like Chuck was. Yeah. Um, but he can just score in a variety of ways, and that's what Oates loves and big guys. Um, but don't get me wrong. I think Bidiaka is a top 10 defensive um, post defender. Uh, but I think he'd ro- probably like to bring Clowney back, especially with Grant Nelson. No, that would just create havoc all over. And Jordan, before we get you out of here, man, again, I appreciate you joining us. Last question. Thoughts on the rest of the league as we stand again. Five months out, uh, Arkansas just finished their third or finalized their 13th spot with that in the middle. Are you transfer. sure? Are you sure they can't add more? <laughs> they would love 17 spots if they could. They would love 17. Somehow they'll get it done. Uh, again, Kentucky, people talk about them. Really young roster, talented. Don't have a lot of bodies. As we know, uh, in, the, in the NCAA basketball tournament, veteran leadership wins. Uh, older players win uh, Older players win in postseason. I mean, A&M, four out of five starters back. Auburn's, I think it was big. They got Janai Broom back. Question, Denver Jones and them. What's kind of the thought? I mean, Tennessee, Santiago, Vescovy, uh Zakai Ziegler back. What's kind of your thoughts on the rest of the league? How would you rank one through six right now as we speak again, June 26th? We're five months out. People are going to be added to some rosters, but interested in your take on this in the SEC right now, heading into 23-24. You could tell me the top four, and it be Tennessee, A&M, Alabama, and um, Arkansas. I think those are the top four. Um not sliding Kentucky. They got a big get in Trey Mitchell. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, that's a huge get. They had to get, had to get him. Um, and Antonio Reeves coming back was massive. That was yep. big. They needed experience on that team, um, and they got it. And Mitchell fell in their lap, and luckily Reeves came back. But I still just don't trust a freshman-led team that they're going to be, especially with the injury they had to one of their star freshmen um, recently. And, you know, I, I just don't trust Kentucky. Yeah, Bradshaw, Bradshaw, that'll limit his, you know, yeah, he, won't be able to practice he won't be back to November, December. So it'll take him a while to get started. Um, but I just don't trust Kentucky or Cal right now. That's just how I've become the past two or three years until they prove me otherwise that they're the Kentucky again. Um, but I really like the experience of Tennessee bringing – bringing in or bringing back as well. A&M bringing back, like you mentioned, those four guys, Marvel, Obaseki, They, I mean, they got Wade, Wade Taylor, Taylor, four of the best point yeah. guards in the country. Rashford. I mean, yeah. yeah, they're they're terrors on defense, man, if they can just figure out the offensive end consistently. Um, and then Arkansas. I think Alabama's a top-four team um, just because I trust Nate Oates' system. I trust that the offense is going to be there. Um, and they'll figure out the kind of rotation um, to kind of move forward. Arkansas is the tricky one because they added a bunch of a bunch of guards, and they're just 
they're probably going to have to play small. They got Brazil back. Um, yeah. Interesting to see how he is. Apparently, he's in really good shape. Um, but the front court for them is going to be intriguing because I don't think Bayfall will be a, an impact player his first year um, if he even stays on campus. But um, they got a bunch of guards that really can't shoot, like Keon Minifield, um, yeah. Tremont Mark, um, Battle. I'm, I'm looking forward to their freshman watching him play, Blockler. I believe that's his name, last name. Yeah, yeah you're um, right. And I'm really intrigued to watch him play. I think he will probably end up being their better, one of the best players by the end of the season. But there's talent there. And right yeah. now, with the state of the league, you know, you got those top four in terms of talent. And then Kentucky, Auburn, I think Florida is incredibly improved. Florida, I think, did a good job in the pool. I think Todd Golden and them did a good job this offseason. Like, I mean, obviously, they lose Auburn. Castleton. But I think they did as good as they good, could from a portal standpoint of upgrading that roster. Yes. And I hot take, I would probably take their roster over Auburn's right now. It's close. From top and to I'm bottom. Not saying that, I'm not saying that because I'm, you know, an Alabama guy, but I I don't like Auburn's structure. I, mean, I feel like it's close to the same. They got Brim back. I think he's going to be improved. Um you know, Denver Jones was a must to get in that scoring guard. Uh, Window Green and Alan Flanagan. I think Alan Flanagan's going to be a bigger loss than what Auburn fans want to admit. I think he's a really totally good agree. defender. He's a great defender. They don't have much defense, man. Like, they're going to be what Alabama was with J.D. Davis, and they're going to have to be up Denver and down. Jones wasn't, Denver Jones wasn't a great defensive player at FIU. He took a lot of plays off. He's a turnover machine. They shoot the lights out. But they're going to have guards that – I mean, they're trusting a D2 player from UAH, which I love UAH and what they're doing, and the JUCO guy that – who knows? Like, they're going to have so many question marks. So, I don't get that. Auburn love um, off the bat. I feel like Florida has more proven players on their roster. Um, and I, I give them the slight edge, and I'll have Kentucky at five. So, give me those top six. Um, but I feel like the top four, I think, is uh, pretty solidified. Yeah, that's good stuff, man. And it's funny, man. We're talking SEC basketball. It's funny how much that sport, basketball, is improved in the conference, just kind of raising the floor. I mean, you were talking June 26th about mm-hmm. roster and SEC basketball when we got a national championship going on in baseball. As we speak, football season two months ago. The basketball season basically. I appreciate you doing Guys, if you don't already follow, make a mistake. But if you want to go follow him, follow him at Harper Nation. Or go give him a follow. Great in depth stuff, specifically Alabama, a lot of Southeastern Conference basketball. Jordan, I appreciate you taking some time to talk to the SEC. Absolutely, Dad. Appreciate it, man. Thanks, man. Man, good guess right there. Jordan, very knowledgeable, very knowledgeable basketball, just a very knowledgeable guy in general about SEC basketball. Uh, I really think he does a really good job with, really, with all the coverage you get from an SEC basketball standpoint. But we're, we're moving to the fan questions. We got the fan questions. We already addressed one of them. Uh, who was, who's the GOAT? Who's the best college football coach after Nick Saban and Bear Bryant at Josh Gray 11 tweeted that question to us? And I said it was Tom Osborne. His 80s, 90s days, three championships in a 10-year span. That's Nick Sabanish right there back in the 90s. Tom Osborne is why Nebraska fans keep reaching for that tree, hoping they can get that success. It's because of Tom Osborne. It's, it's because of what 
Tom Osborne did for that program. Getting the fan questions ready for you. But here we go. Leading off. Sorry about that. Perfect. All right. Next question coming from at Hey Millie slash Major Dick Winners. Appreciate your service, Mr. Major. Uh, three questions here. Three and one. Has Josh Heupel created a complete winning culture across all sports at Tennessee? I, I don't know if I'm giving Josh Heupel or even Danny White, Tennessee's AD, that credit yet. Josh Heupel, one good season, really good season for him last year. Honestly, had a good first season as well. They lost 40 people going into that first year. But I don't think it's Josh Heupel. I mean, you got to give Rick Barnes and Tony V, Tony Vitello credit too for setting the winning culture at Tennessee. I mean, since 2018-2019 season, Tennessee has only finished outside the top four in the SEC in basketball once. That's a credit to Rick Barnes. I know he struggled in the postseason I think a lot of it's because people think he underachieved in that 18-19 year when they had Andrew Bone, Admiral Schofield, and Grant Williams, and they lost in the Sweet 16. He can't get past the Sweet 16. I think sometimes Rick Barnes takes unfair criticism. Tony V, I mean, he's been to Omaha twice now in three seasons. and Had arguably the best regular season of anybody, except maybe to Wake Forest this year. Last year, they shouldn't make it to Omaha. I mean, I don't know if I'm giving Josh Heupel the credit on the Tennessee success. He's only been there. This be his third season. And Tony Vitello and Rick Barnes were both there before him and probably had more success so far. So I don't think it's a Josh Heupel thing. I think it's a University of Tennessee Athletics is having a good, successful programs right now, especially in their big three sports. I think that's more of a, uh, a compliment towards, like I said, Rick Barnes and Tony Vitello. I wouldn't even give to- Danny White that credit yet. Uh, but, no, I do not think that's just a Josh Heupel thing. But I think he's helping for sure. I think he's helping. You go as far as football, but again, uh, let's don't discredit what Rick Barnes and Tony Vitello have done in the athletic department. Uh, hey, hey, at Millie's second question is: I want to hear the wildest story from your days in the business, whether it's recruiting or just something in general. So, if you're just listening to this show, my name's Dave Shumate, owner CEO of Mike Ten Sports. I used to work in college football for ten years. Um, I've been a personnel director uh, in the Big Twelve, uh, SEC. That's really it. But started my career at Alabama as a student assistant there. I worked at Miami, um, then worked at Georgia for two years, Auburn, Texas A&M, Kansas for two years, and then ended my career at UCF before deciding to get out, really to get more time back with my family and stuff like that. So been around the block, seen a lot of it, uh, really cut my teeth in the SEC. It's a, it's a good story. I mean, some that come to mind is, um, I mean, a comedy. When I've driven around a head coach before that had to go to the bathroom so bad, he peed in a church parking lot on an offic- on uh, on um, during contact period in winter. If you don't know what contact period is, very fast, upbeat. You're trying to go in home to see the kids, make sure they're signing their NLI correctly, uh, stuff like that. Just shoring up the things. But it's crunch time in December. That head coach couldn't wait, so I had to pull over and happen to be a church. Maybe it's on me, and he urinated in the parking lot. That's a, that's a funny story. I always remember. Uh, from an evaluation standpoint, dog night at the University of Georgia in 2015. I mean, you get a Jacob Eason, Trevor Lawrence battle. Trevor Lawrence was going into ninth grade. Ninth grade. Um, Nicole Hardman was out there. That's when guys used to camp a lot. That's when guys like to compete. Not saying they don't now, but the camp landscape now is totally different. I mean, I think we had six out of the top 35 overall prospects on campus, and they actually camped that day. Rashawn Gary was there. I thought he was about – to uh, commit to Coach Mark Rick. I was right outside the office talking to his mom. His mom was asking questions. Literally, I know she was asking everybody those questions, but 
felt good about that. But at 2015 dog night, probably the most players out there on one field competing at once from a high school prospect standpoint. That's very fun to watch, but it was different times back then. Trevor Lawrence in ninth grade with a little baggy jersey. So it's fun to think about that. Jacob Eason, if you don't remember, five-star prospect, went to Georgia, got hurt in 2017, the year Georgia went to the national championship and lost to Alabama. That let Jake Fromm move in, uh, and then they both went their separate ways. Um, Jacob Eason transferring back to his home state school, Washington, where he started for Chris Peterson and the Huskies there. Um, some other good breakfast with Jimbo, as I call it. You may be asking, Dave, what the hell is that? If you're on AM staff, you know what I'm talking about if you're listening. Breakfast with Jimbo is these staff meetings every day. We have Jimbo Fisher. His assistant brings him his McDonald's, extra crispy bacon, biscuit, and eggs. And you listen to Jimbo stories. You listen all the way back to when he was an offensive coordinator with LSU, uh, talking about the Matt Flynn days, the Rohan Davey days, Kelvin Falk, Kevin Falk days. Uh, then back when he was recruiting all the guys he had with Jameis Winston in the 2013 National Championship team. Those are guys he talked about a lot. Specifically, Jameis Winston and those guys, Kelvin Benjamin. Uh, he talks about a lot of those defense. He just it, Jimbo Fisher is a good story. If you really sit in there, a lot of stuff he's talking about has a great just mind, just almost Rolodex, as I call it. If you're an evaluator, you, you're always comparing guys, especially if you've done it for a while. Like, oh, that guy reminds me of uh, Kelvin Benjamin. If you're watching a receiver, big tall linear receiver, the big catch race. But he would go back to that. He had a good Rolodex. But breakfast with Jimbo, always getting started. It may not even be football, just current events he listened to on the radio rolling in. I mean, we'd start staff at 7.30. He was rolling in at about 7.29, breakfast sitting right there in front of him. And you better be it, – it's rapid fire. If he wants to watch a kid, you better have the film ready on the projector to go to huddle, watch the cut up, the good, bad, ugly, pull it up. I mean, it, it, some fun stories there from his times. Uh, telling some stories I probably can't even tell in here, and I'm not going to get to it. But those are some stories uh, at Millie Strings, I'm inter- if you're interested in, from the comedic purposes of a coach peeing in the church parking lot, the evaluation of seeing six out of the top 35 guys uh, all competing at once, Jacob Eason, Trevor Lawrence, and then honestly just hearing these head coaches and how they've been for 25, 30 years, going back to Jimbo's Sanford days and when he was the OC at Auburn, Damian Craig's on his staff right now as the wide receivers coach. He was the OC when Damian was the quarterback at Auburn. It's hearing stuff like that that's just fun taking you back, especially if you're a uh, old time, big time SEC fan and you remember a lot of those players from the '90s, early 2000s, and on. So that's my that's how I'd answer your question right there, Millie Strings. And then finally, says so just tell us about yourself. I told you a little bit about my background, uh, college football for ten years from uh, Ocean Springs, Mississippi, originally. Uh, graduated from St. Patrick's High School, went to the University of Alabama. That's where I got my start in athletics. Um, I currently work at Quick U. I'm over sales right now uh, for Quick U for Tyler Siski, uh, who was my boss at Alabama. And what we do is we're a recruiting database um, for colleges right now. We have Georgia, uh, LSU, Texas A&M, schools like that. It pay for our services of recruiting database. It's a real recruiting organization database with an interactive uh some stuff we do from a travel, fall, spring eval standpoint, and some also we do the good bag, ugly kit tapes. In fact, we do the evaluation tapes for Georgia, Texas A&M, uh, LSU, like not just SEC teams, teams all over the country. So we do their evaluation tapes for them. That's really what we do at Quick U. So that's a little bit about myself. I appreciate the questions there. Hey, hey, at Mil- hey, at hey, little Millie, major dick winners. Looks like you're a Tennessee fan there, man. But I appreciate you listening to the show. Thank you for that question. Uh, go to the next few questions here. At Richard Matisse. It's a good question here. I like this one. 
is Sylvester Croom the worst coach to ever take down Satan? Um, uh, all right, let's go through the list of guys. All right, here's the coaches that have beat Nick Saban. Since he's been at Alabama, I'm assuming, Richard, is what you're talking about. Mark Rick, Bobby Bowden, Les Miles, Todd Berry, who's now over the uh, FCA, uh, used to be the head coach at ULM. He was the head coach, and they beat Alabama in 07. Sly Croom, who you just asked about, Sylvester Croom, Tommy Tuberville, Urban Meyer, Kyle Whittingham, Steve Spurrier, Gene Chizik, Kevin Sumlin, Gus Malzahn, Hugh Freeze, Dabo Sweeney, Ed Orgeron, Jimbo Fisher, Kirby Smart, Josh Heupel, and Brian Kelly. Yeah, I would say at Alabama, Sylvester Croom is the worst coach that has beat Nick Saban. I mean, you can make an argument, Ed Orgeron, I guess, when he was at LSU, but, I mean, he won a national championship. Same with Gene Chizik, 2010. So, if they got a national championship under their hat, I'm not going to say it's the worst. It's got to be Sylvester Croom. I would, I would say yes to that um, at Richard Matisse. I would certainly say yes to that. And then Richard also asked another question. Um, where is his other question here? If Kirby goes – Kirby Smart. It's another question by Richard Matisse. If Kirby Smart goes 0-8 in the SEC to finish last, assuming that's what it would take to finish below Vanderbilt for two years in a row, would he be given the same leniency as Chris Limonis? If you don't know, Chris Limonis is Mississippi State's baseball coach. Mississippi State has missed the SEC tournament two years in a row. They finished 13th and 14th in the league back-to-back years after winning a national championship. So I get what Richard's talking about here. Would Kirby Smart get the same leniency as Limonis? Um, and he says, in other words, does a natty buy you crap in the bed for two straight years? So he's asking if Kirby Smart for the next two years went 0-8 after going back-to-back. Similar to what Chris Limonis did. Chris Limonis never went back-to-back. But he won a national championship and has been very bad the next two years. Would Kirby Smart be fired? Hmm. Comparing two different sports, and I still t- stay till this day, winning a national championship in college baseball and winning a national championship in college basketball is a lot harder to do than in college football because you're going into kind of – not college baseball double elimination, postseason tournament, college basketball, as you know, single elimination. Just a – Little room for error where postseason matters when you put the regular season a little bit to the back burner. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think Kirby Smart would be. I don't think that's obviously not going to happen. I don't think Richard thinks that's going to happen. But I think Kirby Smart would be gone if he went 0 8 back to back years. I mean, you kind of saw it a little bit with Gene Chizik. He was fired after his 2012 season after winning it all in 2010. Kind of saw it with Ed Orgeron after winning the national championship and having one of the, probably, I think, probably the greatest team of all time in 2019, led by Joe Burrow. After the 21 season, he was fired. So you kind of seen it. I would say, yeah, football has a less uh, – they're going to give you less leash. Like, I mean, they're paying you that much money to win those football games. You're going to go over, and we're playing this hypothetical series. If Kirby Smart was going to 0-8 in the 23 and 24 season, yeah, I think Georgia has a new football coach at 25. I don't know what the hell would have had to happen for that to happen. But, yeah, I think there's a little bit more leniency for the football side of things. Uh or no, sorry, I think there's a little bit more leniency from the baseball side of things just because how hard it is to win the national championship. I mean, look at Tennessee last year in baseball. They didn't even get to them all. Look at Wake, dominated the regular season this year. Granted, they played in the ACC, but still, they didn't They didn't make the college championship World Series the final series. They finished third, which is great. Just so much harder to win it in basketball and college baseball. Where, yeah, I think Kirby Smart would be done just because I'm going off what just the history of what has happened. And guys have gotten fired before I within two or after two years of winning a national championship. Like I said, Edward Ron, Gene Chizik. But at Richard Matisse, I appreciate you asking that question there for us, man. It's a, it's a very good question. 
And also to go back, if you're not talking about the worst coach ever to beat Nick Saban, if you're just talking about at Alabama, yes, Sylvester Croom. But I want to put a little note here. Nick Saban did lose in 2000, his first year at LSU, to a UAB team led by Watson Brown, who was ultimately fired. So I think at the end of the day, the worst coach he ever lost to was probably Watson Brown. The worst coach he's ever lost to during his tenure at Alabama, yes, was the 2007 game against Mississippi State and Sylvester Croom. If you don't remember that, John Parker Wilson, Alabama kind of controlling that game, threw a pick, pick – uh, as Alabama was about to go into the end zone to go up two scores right for the half, but he threw a pick six to end the half as time expired. I, I, if you hadn't seen it, I recommend you go YouTube it. Alabama versus 2007 versus Mississippi State, or just type in John Parker Wilson interception in the half versus Mississippi State. I'm sure you can find it out there. Um, those are the questions by at Richard Matisse. I appreciate you asking those questions, man. I appreciate you listening to the show. And then at Cole Maniac, the final question. This is one of my favorite ones. I tweeted about it, quote tweeted it, and said I was looking forward to this one. How do you view Saban, Nick Saban, as an in-game coach? Is he elite, really good, or above average? Now, he's not asking like Nick Saban is an overall coach. We all know that elite, the best in this era of all time. He's talking about just specific game day, just game management, clock management, I'm assuming, Coleman. Um, games that come to mind where I feel like Alabama was out coached, and I feel like that's kind of where he's getting at. Uh, 2014, Ohio State in the playoff in the Sugar Bowl. Uh, 2017 and 2019 Auburn, 2018 Clemson in the national championship game, and this past year 2022 against Tennessee, letting Jalen Hyatt go for five straight five touchdowns with no adjustment. Um, look, Nick Saban's biggest strength is isn't his knowledge of X's and O's or his ability. Sorry, Nick Saban's strength isn't his X's and O's knowledge. It's his ability to run an organization like a weld oil machine year in, year out. Anyone who's ever worked for Nick Saban would tell you he's not going to just totally blow you away with his X's and O's knowledge. That's just not him. Sometimes I think we actually underutilize Nick Saban straight. The guy shouldn't be coaching football. We're actually wasting his time. He could really go help us up in D.C. if he was into that. He'd be really good at that. He could be really good at that because he's a good organization builder. He's organized. He's processed detailed. He spells out people's responsibility. There's no confusion. People in that building do not get outside their lane. You know your specific job responsibilities when you take that job. And I think that's a very big strength that a lot of guys don't have, that a lot of guys don't have. But I think it's crucial to be a head coach at that level in the SEC, to be that CEO mentality. Um, again, he's also really good at elite. He's an elite talent acquisition gatherer. He gets he's recruited at an elite level since he was since he's been at Alabama after Alabama went seven and six. He signed the number one recruiting class in the country, that 08 class with Julio Jones and them, with Mark Ingram and them and Dante Hightower. Off a seven and six record losing to ULM. He sells a goal. He told Julio Jones, We're gonna win with we're gonna win with you or we're gonna win without you. God does a really good job roster manager bringing in talent. So it's really just the organization, the process defining roles for his employees, and also bringing in the talent. That, that's Nick Saban's biggest strength right there. And, again, I'm, I'm again, his preparation is second to none, in my, in my opinion, but his in-game management is probably not one of his top five biggest strengths. And people may call me crazy. I just don't think it's the top biggest strength to him, especially if you've been in the building, you talk to people in the building. doesn't mean it's bad. I'm not saying it's bad. And I would say it's actually good, but it's not really good or elite. He's just good. I know Coleman asked what I consider elite, really good, or above average. Probably none of the three. I would just consider it probably good. Good game day management. Uh, but everyone has their strengths. And in-game management, I think, is his, let's say, weakness, but not one of his strong suits. I mean, but 
it's just the clock management at times, leaving some timeouts when you have a minute and a half, two minutes to try to go score because he's trying to play a little conservative. I think ways they kind of don't adjust until they get into halftime a little bit's a little interesting. That was more so when Pete Golden was the defensive coordinator. And look, there's times Nick Saban's been a good game manager. Look at the onside kick he called coming out of that uh, in the second half against Clemson to win the 2016 national championship game, the 2015 season against Clemson, the year they beat him. Um, but some of Nick Saban's stuff, the in-game first half, like he's just trying to get to halftime, the way he uses his um, timeouts, leave a, leave a lot to be desired sometimes. So I think – I don't think it's crazy to say in-game management, clock management, ability to use your timeouts, it's not one of Nick Saban's top five biggest strengths. I would not give that to him. But, again, it's not bad. So I don't want people to turn around saying it's bad. But anyone you talk to, if you've been in the building, you just know like there's other people that are better X's and O's guys than Nick Saban. But give him credit again. That goes back to he'll hire head coaches that get fired to come get rehabbed in him, and he's going to go take their hey, what did y'all do in uh, the program you just left, and how they can utilize the strengths from that program. He's open minded. He's open to new ideas, which is another strength. I just think one of his weaknesses, and not even again, that's so bad. I don't I, I don't like saying weakness. Not one of his strong suits is just I think his. On game day for those 60 minutes is not Nick Saban's biggest strengths. Like I said, it's the organization. It's the finding the roles. It's the talent acquisition that he brings in. Um, it's just being consistent day to day. And look, he's been there so long now and how good they are for so long. That's awesome. But I do think he gets out coached once or twice every year. I mean, he's only had two undefeated teams ever. And that's not a big deal. Plenty of national championships, but only two undefeated teams in 2009 and 2020. He, I think it's not crazy to say he gets out coached once or twice a day. I think it's a great question at Cole Maniac. I appreciate you asking that. It was an intriguing one. That was an intriguing one. I hope I answered that well. But I would say Nick Saban is a good, not great game day coach, and it's not one of his top five attributes. So appreciate you asking that question at Cole Maniac. I hope I answered your question there, man. Uh, but, I, again, I appreciate you listening to the show too. Some good questions from the fan questions. Again, this is going to be an every episode segment. I'll post it 24 hours um, before. But that's going to be it right now for this episode. Let me give you an up, uh, update on the LSU game before we get out of here. It's a 10 to 2 score. LSU right now, bottom of the sixth. Uh, LSU looking like they're getting they're getting closer and closer to the national championship. First national championship since the 2009 team with Paul, led by Paul Maneri. But we had a great jam-packed episode. A lot of portal updates from college basketball and college baseball. We did a little bit of uh, put up or shut up SEC East uh, segment. I hope you like that. We did the SEC West one last week. We did the SEC uh, East today. Um, we got Jordan Harper, rivals college basketball analyst on, talk a little what the Javon Quinterly transfer means for Alabama, who they're going to go after now, the landscape of the SEC basketball, SEC basketball as we stand five months away. Then we also introduced the fan question segment. And again, I'm going to post that, like I keep saying, 24 hours before. I try to answer everybody's question um, each episode. But again, I appreciate you joining us for this episode of Mock 10 Sports. Look forward to seeing you on Sunday. You have a great next couple of days. Keep following us on Mock 10 Sports for the best information on SEC sports.